You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. O oh God of unsearchable greatness, you deserve the praise and worship of all nations, all people, and all of creation. For you are the maker and sustainer of the universe. You are the giver of all blessings we enjoy. And so hallowed be thy name. We pray that your name would be regarded by all people everywhere as holy. May all the people know that you are God and that you are unmatched, unrivaled in power, wisdom, and love. King of kings, occupy the throne of our hearts. Take captive our desires. Take full possession of the allegiance of your church. Discipline and prune us until all our rebel lusts and idols are removed. Lord, you tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Lord of the harvest, we plead and we plead and we ask that you would raise up more workers to send to the harvest field. Grant us greater zeal, greater boldness to promote thy kingdom, for we have but one candle of life to burn, and we desire to burn brightly with the light of Christ every moment of our fleeting lives on earth. So now, as we are about to feast on your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes so that we would see what you want us to see. Awaken us from our slumber and raise us up to new heights of affections for our great Redeemer and swallow us up in holy passion to glorify your name. All this we pray in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we are taking a short pause on our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And toward the end of July, once I return from Jerusalem, I intend to pick it up again from Ephesians chapter 4. But as many of you know, for the past month, during our Wednesday Bible studies, we've been learning a lot about the Great Commission and our responsibility in evangelism and making disciples. But I realized that I have not yet preached a sermon on the Great Commission here at Diaspora. And so I thought it would be very appropriate for me to do just that and consider together our calling and our mission to the lost as the church. Please open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. This was the reading of God's word. What you just heard and read is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. It is the charge and command that Jesus gave to his disciples at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. And the fact that these are the final words from our Lord before his ascension stresses the weightiness and the greatness of this commission. Surely these parting words of Christ burned within his disciples, for they would go on to gladly suffer persecution and even death for the spread of his gospel. And as a result, what we observe in history is the explosion of Christianity from just a handful of disciples to over 30 million within the first three centuries. And over the stretch of 2,000 years, brave Christian men and women risked their lives to proclaim the gospel in the most dangerous places in the world in obedience to the Great Commission. That's why we're sitting here today. You and I owe it to these brave souls for faithfully passing on the words of eternal life to our people, to our nation, to our generation. For this reason, and for the sake of the glory of God, the Great Commission must be of great importance to every single follower of Jesus Christ. But the great tragedy of our day is that this commission has been largely neglected and forgotten. In 2017, a study was conducted among churchgoers in the U.S. and it, it exposed that only 17%, 17% of churchgoers actually knew what the Great Commission was. Only 17%. This is obviously shocking to us, but I suppose it would be even more shocking to find out how many Christians actually obey and live out the Great Commission. Brothers and sisters, the greatest hindrance to the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the evangelization of the world is not physical distance or lack of supply. We live in a time where we can hop on a plane and get to the other side of the world in 24 hours. And Jesus didn't even say that the harvest is plentiful, but the money is few. He said, the workers are few. Rather, I'm convinced that the greatest hindrance to the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the evangelization of the world are disobedient Christians. 
But in the words of the fine missionary Hudson Taylor, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but it is a command to be obeyed. And the question that presses upon you today is this, will you obey? Will you obey? Will you obey this final charge from our Commander-in-Chief? Because you can settle for a casual, comfortable, superficial Christian life and waste your entire life pursuing worldly ambitions, collecting worldly possessions, and seeking worldly pleasures. Or you can actually recognize that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of much more. He is worthy of your obedience. He is worthy of your time. He is worthy of your life. He is worthy of your worship and the worship of every single human being on this planet. The word worship broken down is worth-ship. It means the ascribing of the highest worth. And to God alone, we ascribe the highest worth. And to none other. You see, at the end of the Great Commission, the end goal, the end goal is the worship of God. This is why we must go. Because we long for all people from all places to be included in the everlasting and heavenly enjoyment and worship of our King. But the Great Commission doesn't just end with worship, it also begins with worship. And so we're told in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. The Greek word here for worship is proskunio. It doesn't mean worship in the sense of musical praise or ceremony, but it means worship as the action of prostrating oneself, your knees to the ground, your forehead to the ground. This posture is the ultimate expression of our reverence and of our adoration of God. We find this word, proscunio, used several times elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. When the Magi from the East followed the stars to find the baby boy in the manger, they bowed down and worshipped him, saying, This is the King of the Jews. When the disciples are on the boat, they get caught in a violent storm. They see Jesus walking on the lake toward them, and once he steps onto the boat, immediately the winds die down. And the disciples fall down and they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When the grieving 
women found the empty tomb, she ran to tell the other disciples. Suddenly, the risen Christ appeared before her, and at once she dropped to the ground, gripped him by his feet, and she worshipped him. Friends, I ask you, does the thought of being in the very presence of Christ bring you to your knees in worship, in adoration, in thanksgiving? Is this the worshipful posture of your heart and your life? This is where it must all begin. There is no Christian missionary who is not yet first a worshiper. And the truth is, the sad truth is that you could be going to church every single Sunday your whole life. You could be singing the songs. You could be a Christian by name. You could believe yourself to be a Christian, but your heart and your life does not indicate that you are a true worshiper. You see, when sinners come face to face with the holy God, and they freely receive God's mercy in Jesus Christ, you know what they do? They burst out in worship. They can't help but to worship. For grateful recipients of God's mercy, worship cannot just be a service they attend on a Sunday but they become so consumed by the worship of God that their whole lives begin to show it. That is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us will be found guilty in his court for breaking his law. A death sentence hangs over our heads and our mountain of sins warrant the wrath and judgment of God. We are doomed. But the mercy of God came down from heaven to stand in our place. And that mercy of God embodied is the Son of God who hung on the cross, who absorbed the wrath of God against us and satisfied it in full. Jesus Christ took all the shame. He took all the sin and paid its penalty with his own life for all who would ever believe in him. For all who would ever trust in him, he laid down his life. And then 
He rose again, proving to be victorious over sin, over death, over all forces of evil. And with his final cry, our burdens erased. In his sacrifice, God's love displayed. On the cross where his blood would drain, his mercy poured out to remove sin's stain. And so in awe and wonder, we humbly bow. The risen Christ we worship now. To him alone we give all praise. For him we live with hearts ablaze. Dear beloved, the call to the Great Commission is first a call to a life of worship, a life of worship. For joyful obedience to Christ only ever grows in the soil of true worship to Christ. Ask yourself, why are you not joyful when you serve Christ? You are serving the King of Kings, your Savior. There must be joy when you are serving Christ because joyful obedience to Christ only ever grows in the soil of true worship to Christ. Now, turn your attention to verse 18. As the disciples are gathered on the mountain in Galilee, Jesus starts his discourse with this statement of fact. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The supreme authority of Jesus is the basis for everything else that follows in this text. You see, it is precisely because Jesus has all authority that we must obey all of his commands. Every single one of his commands, we say, yes, we will do. If he tells you to sit, you sit. If he tells you to go, you go. He is the Lord of your life. And so your time is not your own. Your money is not your own. Your talents is not your own. Your future is not your own. All because your life is not your own. Your life belongs to Christ, your master. Moreover, Jesus is not just Lord of your life. He is Lord over all creation. And so he can rebuke the winds and calm the storm. He can speak a word and heal the sick give sight to the blind, bring a dead man back to life. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. And so this begs the question, who is this man? Who is this man who claims to have all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, the testimony of Scripture is clear. There is only one, one being who has the attribute of omnipotence and all authority 
and that is God alone. And so what does this tell, about, tell us about Jesus Christ? Well, he's not just a man. He is God, the supreme ruler and creator of the universe. Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And it is precisely because Jesus has all authority that we can go fearlessly to the most dangerous places in the world and preach the gospel to savages and our preaching would not be in vain for we were sent by the authority of God and we are sustained by the authority of God and we will win by the authority of God. The Great Commission will indeed succeed because his authority guarantees it. The church will win. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. February 18th, 2003 is remembered as one of the darkest and devastating days in South Korea. There was a lunatic who set a subway train on fire. The fire grew larger and larger and the fire spread to another train. The automatic fire detector shut down the power in the entire station. The doors remained locked shut. People were trapped inside where they suffocated by the toxic smoke and they burned alive. That day, 198 people died. Another 147 were left injured. A later investigation found the subway operator guilty of criminal negligence. Apparently, the subway operator survived the incident because he was able to open his own door with his master key that he had, and he ran away by himself. He ran away by himself. But what he should have done was to save those passengers by opening their doors with the master key. I hear this story and it is so heartbreaking. It is so frustrating to see how much of a coward this subway operator was, a coward, a coward. Likewise, as Christians, 
we are like this subway operator and the master key we hold is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can be a coward. We can run away as we remain disengaged in the mission or we can do everything in our power to save people who are on the path to hell by opening their doors one by one by one, even if it means risking our own lives, risking it all. We hold the master key. We have the gospel that is the power of God to save. And so will we disengage and watch people perish or will we go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, I ask, do we not owe the world to Christ? He chose us. He saved us. He died for us. And do we not owe Christ to the world? For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which people are saved. No other name. And so we must go. We must go because there are still well over 3 billion people in the world who have never heard, who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know who he is. They have never heard, not even once. Three billion people in the world who are still considered unreached. This means that they are born and that they will live and that they will likely die without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Let me remind you that the gospel is only good news to the lost if it gets there in time. And so we must go to all the world with passion and with all urgency. We must go. We must go. And if you are not personally going to the unreached, Right now, ask yourself, how will you get involved as a sender and mobilize the goers who will go? How will you support them? How will you pray for them for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth? How will you get involved? You see, the evangelization of the world is the responsibility of not just the faithful few, but of the whole wide church. It is our responsibility as the church. That is why the vision statement of the Asper Church is this, reaching everyone everywhere with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we encourage all of you, all of our members, to pray and to labor to this end, the evangelization of the world. However, the, the work of the Great Commission is not just about converting unbelievers. The aim, the goal, is to make disciples. After the gospel is preached, 
after sinners are receptive, the job is not done. We must help them to mature as disciples or students of Jesus Christ. Now, there are three things I must point out here in this text about disciple-making from verses 19 to 20. First, we must make disciples of all nations. All nations. The original Greek phrase used here for all nations is pantata ethne. This is not referring to nations in the sense of different countries. That's man-made. It is referring to ethnic and people groups. You see, Jesus' command is very specific. He wants us to make disciples among every ethnic and people groups in the whole world. And so church, we face a task unfinished. Christ would like us to go and gather all the nations into the Father's house. To finish this task could cost you a lot. It could cost you your comfort, your safety, your privileges, your rights. To finish this task would demand all of your attention, all of your passion, all of your creativity, all of your talents. But I believe that God has blessed us God has blessed you and I so abundantly. Not so that we can live in luxury, but so that we can be a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. A blessing to all the nations. We must make disciples of all nations. And secondly, we must baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a rite of washing or cleansing by water. The Westminster Confession puts it, baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remissions of sin, and of our giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Of course, the very act of baptism itself does not save anybody. It does not save a sinner. But baptism is the visible picture of entrance into the covenant family of God. And it is an explicit command by Jesus Christ that we must obey. Every single disciple of Jesus must be baptized in God's triune name. The Father the Son, the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we must teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. Jesus' expectations for his disciples was to reproduce themselves by teaching others everything they have learned from him. Reproduction is how Christianity began to grow. They didn't have the internet or social media to broadcast their message, the gospel, to all the world. The early church saw massive growth, you know how? By the good old-fashioned method 
of person-to-person teaching discipleship. Think about this. If one Christian somehow successfully converted 10 people every single day, every single day you go out, you evangelize to 100 people, and 10 people come to Christ, that's amazing. Let's say you do that every single day for 365 days a year, well, that person would have converted 3,650 people per year. But it would take them 2.16 million years to convert the world's population of, of almost 8 billion. It would take forever. But if one Christian makes just two disciples, two disciples per year, and then those disciples reproduce and also go on to make two disciples of their own the following year, and so forth, well, then it would only take under 33 years, under 33 years to disciple the world's population. This exponential, exponential power is what we call spiritual multiplication. And this was Jesus' idea. This was his strategy to grow the church to reach the world. He wants us to make disciples who make disciples. This is inferred in the teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We teach them to obey the Great Commission and also to go on to make disciples. Disciple making is certainly not easy. It is hard work. It requires immense patience, love, time. Like a hardworking farmer who plants the seeds, waters the plants, and we pray to God and rely on Him to give it growth. Every disciple of Christ must be taught everything that Jesus commanded. This means the whole counsel of God, the Bible. Therefore, you and I must be serious students and teachers of the Bible. Moreover, every disciple of Christ must be taught to obey. Not just know, but to obey everything that Jesus commanded. We must imitate the life and character of godly Christians who teach us, not just head knowledge, but who teach us by setting an example by their life, by their fruits, by their Christ-likeness. When other people see you, do they see likeness of Christ? And so at Diaspora Church, our mission is summed up in three words. Testify, fortify, and multiply. We testify of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit wherever we are and where, wherever we go. We fortify in the Word of God for holy living and to be equipped for service. We multiply by making disciples of all nations who make other disciples. Now, as we come to the end of the sermon, I want to ask you this question again that we began with. Will you obey the Great Commission?
Well, let me answer that for you. If you are a Christian, disobedience to Christ is not an option. And delayed obedience is disobedience. Don't delay obedience. Obey now. Perhaps some of you feel overwhelmed, pressured. You feel the weightiness of this call. Can I really do this? Surely the Great Commission is a daunting task. Actually, the Great Commission is not just a daunting task. The truth is, it is an impossible task. You and I cannot do this. We cannot do this. The truth is that we are too inadequate. We are too weak to finish the task. We are too weak. But the only reason why we can attempt great things for God is because we have a great God who can do the impossible. Christ our Redeemer, the supreme ruler who has all authority in heaven and on earth, would like us to know this. He is with us. He is for us. He will sustain us. You see, there is a final promise to us attached at the end of the Great Commission. Read that with me. Verse 20, Jesus says to his disciples, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you catch that? What words of assurance, what words of consolation is this? That God is always with us. Be encouraged by this, dear Christian. The very presence of Christ, the very presence of Christ will follow you wherever you go, wherever you are. You cannot escape his presence if you are his child. He will sustain you. He is always with you until you Join him in glory. And so we obey the Great Commission as we depend upon the presence of Christ and his power and his wisdom and his spirit. And so we can be confident that as we attempt great things for God, as we seek to win the world for Christ, as we go to the most dangerous places where the gospel is most needed, we can be confident that we are safe, that we are secure in the Father's sovereign hands. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your children in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us the gospel and you have entrusted to us the gospel. We hold the master key. Help us not to be cowards, but help us to obey. Help us to go. Help us to make disciples of all nations. For Jesus Christ, you are worthy of our lives, and you are worth losing everything for. You are our king. We believe this gospel message is true. 
not just good news, but true news that can save the lost. And so, Lord, would you empower us to go? Would you convict us and sustain us by your sovereign hands? We thank you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.